Alexander. I'm Amanda. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Alexander, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, I'm Alexander Young. I uh, remain a uh, professor of mathematics uh, at the college level, and um, it's uh, it's still quite an experience. Um, I don't really have anything that's uh, findable on the internet. The only things I'd have to plug it would be uh, stuff for my students, and if you're already one of my students, you already know about it. All right, and Amanda, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Amanda. I'm a controls engineer. Uh, I program industrial robots to lift really heavy things. It's a good life. Uh, I would like to plug my neighbor's kids. They're learning about video game programming. They're very excited about it. Uh, And they go to school with other kids who are learning about video game programming. So if you know anyone who wants to talk to you remotely to a school full of kids who want to learn things about video game programming, uh, drop us a line and I would be glad to hook you up with some kids who probably think you're the freaking coolest person ever. Do you do you have a, an email address? Because I am certain there's going to be someone interested in the audience of this show. Uh, yeah. Alex, you have my email address. Yeah. Uh, can, can we just provide that after the show? Sure. Yeah. We can put it in the show notes. If you put my email address in the notes, uh, I would love to hook your viewers up. Um, Actually, this is really great. I'm teaching high school kids how to program in Python. I don't really know Python, but I do know when people are using for loops wrong, and that has gotten me through like 120% of volunteering. You just teach them to use tail recursion for everything. Yeah. Uh, that was like me in MATLAB. I once, as part of my job, had to be uh, helping my students out with their MATLAB coding. I have yet to actually learn MATLAB, but uh, some things I, just look wrong. I will not listen to you disparage <laughs> MATLAB in this room, so don't... Don't... I have nothing to disparage it about. I Good. legitimately don't know how it works. That's fine. So what would you say is the difference between programming robots to lift heavy things and programming robots to lift light things? Uh, I guess, like, so I went to an IEEE conference a few years ago and uh, like kind of like my experience with like what you call a robot and what other people think of robots is a little different because people think like, you know, they like Boston Dynamics, they think like the cool robot dog or they think humanoid robots or things that like look like people and run around or um, like things that you can build from a kit, build on your desk. You know, like I had one of those little tiny robot arms that you'd use for like, you know, like lifting test tubes or something. But that, that's very different for what I'm, I'm dealing with, which is essentially like kind of factory automation. Uh, so these things are like huge, they're lifting around car parts and they come with a whole bunch of extra safety things um, to the consequences of bad code on a machine that's like lifting around a car or like, uh, like the Harry Potter ride, right? Like they spin you around, like there's actually like a robot holding like your little ride car that spins you around. The consequences of that going wrong are like much worse than the consequences of like your home test tube lifting mini arm going uh, bad. I mean, it depends what so, it's, what's in the test tube, right? <laughs> so more code reviews. Uh, cut, like there, there's a lot of standardization. You tend to be like way behind in terms of programming languages. Like I still do a lot of stuff in C. We do a lot of stuff in Ladder, but that's because there's like an IEC standard for those languages. Um, there's like a lot of safety standards and the focus is more on having like tested, proven super, super reliable hardware. Yeah. Using stuff that's rated for like, you know, 20 million cycles over like 10 years or something versus the stuff you see at home. So that the cost of all your stuff <laughs> goes way up and like the 
the modernity of it goes back by like 20 years. It's like how banks still use cobalt. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the, the other thing is it's like, it's kind of like less sexy than people usually think of robots. I think like to me, like we, we build a lot of different machines and they use like a lot of the same kind of like logic and common components. And so it's like, it's more of a spectrum. Like at what point would you call it a robot versus not a robot? Like if I have, if I have six rotary axes in a row holding something, um, and like a bunch of links in between, like that to most people says robot arm and it's like definitely robot. But if I have three rotary axes and they're mounted on like a big like linear slide, then that's just kind of like generic machine for some people, even though it's like the same parts and like the same. That's like a fancy conveyor belt. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Conveyor belts are different programming. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Amanda's very good at her job. I believe it. Are, are we ready for some topics? Uh, I believe so. Amanda, your first topic is harpsichord music in the public domain for spooky chiptune soundtracks. What I was wondering is like, I started taking harpsichord lessons and like my mom's a piano teacher. Like I know a lot of like boring old dusty music, but what's really great is my harpsichord teacher would just find like, it's kind of like a reference service for like 300 year old music that you've never heard of, but might like. So, so sort of in the same vein, like I was kind of wondering like, are there people out there who would be interested in like, there's probably all this old public domain music that's really cool and might work for your game. But if you're like not really into classical music or if you don't know a lot outside of like Bach and Mozart, like you might never find it. Yeah. Your heart, as I recall, your harpsichord teacher, he's pretty much a man who lived in Victorian times and fell through a time portal to the present day. No, he's faking <laughs> you out. But sorry, I yeah, Jim, we, I was talking to Jim. Oh. I had a question for Jim. You know, you're you're both on the show. You can both talk. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry. I, I have my big. I, I was really wondering. I guess like what what would be interesting to to you and and your listeners. Like, do you want to like talk about some composers that might be interesting, or like just hear some cool little clips of songs that like you might be able to use for something? Or you, you said you were going to talk about some composers. You could talk about composers and then play some of their music, maybe. Yeah, so harpsichords are kind of like a failed branch on the evolutionary tree of keyboard instruments. Uh, that's for a number of reasons. Uh, so hopefully, if you're listening, you're, you're vaguely familiar with pianos. Uh, pianos are cool. They look like they're wooden, but the inside of pianos are made of metal. And what's really nice about that is like it doesn't bend very much. So like if you tune a piano, it'll stay in tune for a few months. Uh, so go back in time. Harpsichords are made of wood, but they're also wood on the inside. This sucks because if you've ever lived anywhere with humidity or with temperature changes or I don't know, like with an atmosphere, uh, anytime something changes, wood bends and it warps. So it means like your instrument that you've so lovingly, like meticulously tuned, uh, anytime the temperature changes or humidity changes goes completely out of tune. And you may in fact find yourself retuning your harpsichord several times in the same day, if not like in the same song. One thing I learned earlier this year in woodworking is that wood is a very unpredictable, I mean, it's it's an ex-living thing. It's very unpredictable exactly what it's going to do. There's like a succession of six different machines you have to use just to make a flat slab of wood that's not bent in some way. Uh, before you before you move on, I am um, fixating on talking about the, uh, the keyboard, the keyboard family tree. What is the parent of the harpsichord? Ooh, uh, so there are things called virginals. Uh, there's also uh, clavichords. Now, clavichords are neat. Elizabeth I was actually a fucking champ at playing the virginal. That was what, like 1600-ish for Elizabeth I? 
You know, now that I really think about it, I can't um, imagine another instrument evolving into a keyboard. Well, no, so like, so hold up though, like, right, like, the, the thing about like, I think clavichords and some of the earlier things is they are single manual. So what that means is there's there's one keyboard and there's one set of strings. If you look at some harpsichords, they're actually like double manual or bigger. So that, that means that there's, if you've ever seen like the driver's seat for a pipe organ, like, you know, you'll see like just stacks of keyboards upon keyboards, right? At some point, like harpsichords kind of try to jump into organ territory. Like they maybe borrow some evolutionary features of organs, like the multiple manuals. The coolest, spookiest sounding harpsichords, every time you play a note, it's actually plucking like three or four strings instead of just one. But unfortunately, I only have a very basic model harpsichord to play for you today, so. I just I just wanted to speak for a moment to the idea of something evolving into a keyboard instrument. I feel like um, something like a dulcimer, where it's already a, strings laid out in an array that you hit with a hammer that you could just automate. I, I, I was thinking that. I was kind of thinking like, you know, a caveman putting some strings on a rock and hitting it with a stone, but it actually is uh, predated by organs. Yeah, well, if you back up for a sec, if you look like on other string instruments, like things like uh, like violins, if you're familiar with like the hurdy-gurdy, there's a similar concept, which is like, hey, I want to play my string instrument, but sometimes like I don't hit the note in the right spot and it makes a funny sound. So there's like, kind of wasting the deterministic note out of other instruments too, like by pressing a key to get a note. Uh, it's, it's not unique to like the keyboard instruments. There's like weird, like hurdy-gurdy things for, for violin that kind of implement the same concept of like, I would like a fixed note when I press a button instead of trying to like actually have a good ear. Ooh, the, the, the pipe organ was invented in the third century BC in Greece. Yeah, they had, a, I think, like, air-powered things. Like, I want to say Aeolians as well, um, and some weird stuff with water. Because yeah. you, you basically just, like, need to get those pipes, like, resonating. I, I want to say there is, like, some kind of, like, old Greek, like, wind-powered version. And I think mm. there's old, um, old keyboard instruments that are kind of like a weird xylophone with glass tubes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, hydraulis. Yeah. See, I'm not looking at Wikipedia, so I would like a point for that, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, so I think uh, kind of the side branch is actually like the lute, because if you play a single string harpsichord, you're more or less playing a lute. You just don't have the ability to kind of bend the notes or to um, like to slide between notes. So a lot of harpsichord music is kind of written in lute style. Uh, if you imagine some kind of like medieval troubadour, they're not really doing like power chords all the time. They kind of have like this this broken flowingness to it. Uh, it's the same thing in the harpsichord. You'll see a lot of music where like the chords are kind of broken up, but they're arpeggiated. It's called steel brise. If you want to go to an art party and sound really fancy, just throw those words around. You don't need to know what they mean, but everyone will be impressed. Uh, and that that is kind of like the keyword to me for like what makes like medieval music in like medieval games. Like I'm thinking like you know the Hobbit game or something. Uh, well, also, it's uh, it's handy for chip tunes because you have a limited number of tracks, so there's a lot of arpeggiation. I, I think that's part of my, my ongoing topic of why harpsichords are overrepresented. Um, I think it's because that style of music is really easy to program when you you can't do chords in a single track. If you pick like lute or harpsichord pieces that were written that way intentionally, like you have a great selection of music to pick from, and you're not really feeling limited. Like, oh shit, I want to do a power chord, but I can't because I don't have three tracks. Right. I think it's pretty interesting that the you know the whole idea of limitation forcing you to do things a different way. Ooh, favorite is I, I think it's called the Nintendo chord. Or oh, the Famicord. Yeah, it's it's what is it? Just is it the first, third, and seventh, but not the fifth? 
Right, because the fifth is the most implied of all of those notes. Yeah, and in, in most other instruments, that's not really an issue. You don't have that kind of economy to work within. Yeah. Uh, so, just, so just for for some context here, we're talking about uh, the um, a jazz seventh is a very like desirable chord when you're making jazzy music, like most modern, frankly, most modern music. But the NES could only play three tones at once, a triangle wave and two square waves. And so to to get the effect of a seventh chord, which is a four note chord, uh, they would omit the, the note that will be most heavily implied by the other three notes. Um, I think we can have a demonstration of this. Okay, what, what keys do you need? Um, give me a chord with uh, the root, major third, and dominant seven? And now add in the fifth. All right, I don't know, I don't actually know how well that demonstration is going to work without any sort of like context for, th for the rest of the song that it would be embedded in. But hopefully, hopefully you learned something today. And if not, I'll link I'll link to in the show notes to the talk about about chiptune music that that I learned this from. And while we're talking about Nintendo music, I just I just gotta play this for like a second and then get back on topic because it's so cool and I have a harpsichord, so why not? Okay, go go for it. Okay, guess guess the song in a minute. I believe that's the um, the the haunted mansion music from Mario World. Oh no! It's uh, it's the castle from uh, Link to the Past. Really? I believe it. I believe it. I kind of conflate those two games. Yeah. Well, and I think I, I feel like there's so many games with spooky harpsichord music, and my, my guess is because it's a pretty easy instrument to like emulate compared to the piano, and I think they just naturally have a spooky quality to to most of the things you play. Sure, yeah. I tried this as an experiment. I wanted to try and synthesize a piano tone. Pianos are complicated things. Yeah, pianos are rough to synthesize. I told you. You did. There, there's just so many things going on, and there's things changing, and I actually found academic papers just dissecting the sound of a piano note, and I, if I recall what I read, early synthesizers tried to synthesize pianos and gave uh, there, there's a there was a huge yeah. market there. I swear. Yeah, it's just like you know what? Screw it. We're just gonna take a recording of a piano and just use that. Well, it's it's really yep. hard to like make a good like at home digital piano. Um, yeah, like there's there's a lot of little things, and if you remove one of them, it doesn't sound as good. So that, like so, some general tips. If I were looking for for video game music, if I were just perusing like a whole bunch of old pieces by random composers, there's what, one thing you might want to try is looking for things called rondo. Uh, it's French or like rondo uh, or round. That's music that's kind of like designed to be repeated, and it's designed to be a little more modular, so you can take pieces out and put them in, play them in different orders, and kind of put it back together. And that's originally how the piece like would have been played uh, as well. So you'd be playing for your audience, you'd kind of like look at their reaction, and be like, "Ooh, they really liked that loud fast part." Well, I'll just play it two or three more times. Changing what you're playing, changing the segments you're playing based on audience reaction sounds like a really slow early version of machine learning. <laughs> so this is Les Barricades Mysterieuses by Francois Couperin. Uh, yeah, so it's in that steel brise, so there's not going to be a lot of chords, they're going to be pretty arpeggiated. So I'm not going to play uh, 
play all of the sections. I'm going to take a chunk of this round and, and play it for you, but you hopefully you get a feeling of uh, what I'm talking about, so... Imagine like your little wagon cart plodding around along through your your quiet sleepy little village. I, yeah, I'm kind of seeing this as like level zero on an RPG when it's like here's the here's before the adventure starts. And so the nice thing here is like you really you don't have any any volume control. So so mood wise, uh, if something is like supposed to be like calm and tranquil. Uh, and quiet, you're gonna have one or two notes happening at a time. If something's supposed to be like exciting or loud, uh, you're gonna have multiple notes happening at a time. You're probably gonna have like a lot of movement, like so, so like a large quantity of notes and many notes at the same time. So I think that like lends itself really well to like the MIDI format um, compared yeah. to something like like the piano. You don't lose. A, there's not a lot of soul to lose. <laughs> it's all in the uh, the arrangement, not the uh, the actual playing. Yeah, so if you're going for like the kind of like the 8-bit soundtrack kind of thing, I think uh, there's like a lot of great organ and harpsichord music that that's written um, with kind of like alternative ways to to get emotion out of a piece that aren't necessarily like the volume or like tonal control. I wonder, like, I, so I can't see the the physical instrument. Is this uh, something with a lid on it, like a piano has? Yeah, and actually, let, let me tell you a little bit more about the mechanics of how this works, uh, since you didn't ask. But, uh, <laughs> so what, what happens on a piano is a piano has these like little things called hammers that when you press the key, uh, they flip up and they sort of punch the string. Uh, whereas a harpsichord actually has, uh, a harpsichord has a bunch of tiny little crow quills in it. The, the actuation of the machine actually uses these quills to pluck the string. So it's almost like you're plucking the harpsichord string, um, like you would pluck like a lute or a guitar. And in fact, you could just reach in here and like, there we go. So, so that's me plucking with my finger. It sounds exactly the same as me plucking it with the, the crow bow. Do you have to replace them with fresh quills every few weeks? Uh, yeah, and there's like uh, bits of leather in here too, which also ages terribly. Bits of felt, uh, which you also have to replace. Uh, yeah, my harpsichord teacher can talk your ear off for hours about uh, how to sharpen your own crow quills to put in your instrument. And that's why you should get a piano if you're thinking of getting a harpsichord. Or just get a digital piano, it probably has a harpsichord sound on it. It's an interesting question to really ponder how many harpsichord repairmen you have in any given city. I, I think like, yeah, to me, look, there's two extremes here. For like 99% of keyboardists, I would say like definitely like go in the digital route, uh, get a digital machine. For the other 1%, like if you like the idea of having several manuals, like that's several keyboards uh, under your hands to play with, and on an organ, like you even get things to play with your foot. And I think like that, like that's truly an amazing experience you can't really have with a digital keyboard, but you can probably pay someone to have that experience occasionally at their facility instead of filling up a room of your house with obscure, terrible musical instruments. Isn't that the plot to Phantom of the Opera? I don't know, my, my real life Phantom of the Opera is where I worry that my piano teacher is going to just quietly sneak uh, like old broken harpsichords into my house while I sleep, just so they'll have a good place, a good home to live in. So, I don't know, Jim, do you have favorite composers? Like, do you have a style that you go for, like, when you're writing music? Like, do you, do you ever do anything, like, kind of, like, baroque or, like, classical or, 
As, as I seem to recall from playing it again, you have a, uh, you have a, f I would describe as funk song on uh, the Frog Fractions DLC. <laughs> yeah, so when I compose lately, it's been very directed. It's been like for the soundtrack of a game and a, and a mood that I'm going for. And the moods that I went for in this game were like 90s era Rompler cool, like, like Rompler rock and um, G-Funk, also I guess early 90s era, like rap backbeat, and what was the other one? Oh yes, it was like a 90s era techno thriller, like you're sneaking around. These were all using the same, um, it was an emulation of a Roland JV-1080, which was a uh, popular at the time sample playback device that just had a bunch of like, a bunch of really influential sounds on it. Yeah, I, I'm sure that, like, I, I've written a bunch of stuff in a bunch of different styles historically, and I'm sure I've done something that was like a, a pastiche of, like, Baroque music, but I can't remember off the top of my head. You used, uh, I mean, this wasn't original, but you remember you used, I think it was Tchaikovsky for Futilitris. Oh, yeah, that was a, a chiptune arrangement of the Slavonic March, of just the first part, because after that it got all triumphant. Oh, yeah, it was a good fit. I actually, I, I ripped off that idea when I made my hexagonal Tetris game. I just made it in 6-8 time because of hexes. <laughs> oh, 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 did you say Tetris? Did you say Tetris? Someone said Tetris. Anyway. <laughs> Very good. Are we ready for another topic? I do have a segue into the topic of uh, shareware floppies, and I'm going to play a short bit of... Uh, a song I learned through Space Shades, and I was like just completely shocked to find out that this was in fact like real music, and it was Bach. Uh, but I I first heard it in Space Shades, and then, then one day I heard someone play it, and I was like, "Wow, you're playing the theme song from Space Shades?" No, they're playing Bach's Invention 13. <laughs> You open up the Internet Archive's copy of Space Shades and we listen to the same thing digitized on a floppy disk that I bought at the grocery store when I was six. <laughs> I know that song because I typed it into my Commodore 128 from the, the, the manual, the Commodore's basic manual that explained here's how the play statement works. Oh, what? Okay, so if you check Space Shades, like the manual somewhere, like the guy like tries to copyright his digital arrangement of spaceships, which I actually was really curious about, because I know, like, I mean, like, Bach's been dead a long time, right? And as far as we if, know. Yeah. So if you, like, go through Bach's, like, notebooks, and you, like, make a nice, like, kind of layout of his music, and you print it out, like, you can copyright that and you can sell it. But I was really curious, like, at, at what point, like, can you copyright, like, a MIDI file that you sequenced from, like, Bach's work? And, like, how how similar can your MIDI file be to someone else's? Like, are there precedent? Like, is there court cases of people disputing that? Because I'm super curious. As far as I know, covers aren't very protected. Like, there was a case where the, the TV show Glee ripped off Jonathan Colton's cover of Baby Got Back. Like, they used the same arrangement and the same lyrics, and he couldn't do anything about it because 
uh, they were they owed money to Sir Mixalot. But like in this case, Sir Mixalot is dead. Is he? Oh, I see. In, in the in the analogy, yes. This is the Allot estate. Right. Well, in, in in that case, they don't owe any money because it's in the public domain. Like, I bet if you used the exact MIDI file, uh, or if it was provably derived from it, then you could maybe be in trouble. But I think that would be a tough case to prove in court. Is that like the guy who like rewrote Quake? Someone, I think someone rewrote Quake, but entirely from scratch. And the question was whether or not like they could like still play that, or like if that was copyright infringement. If it, if you could show that you like rewrote every every function of Quake from scratch, does that become your work? Like Ship of Theseus of Quake? Like a like a clean room, dirty room kind of scenario. Yeah, I guess because like presumably you didn't work for the original publishers. Mm-hmm. I, I guess you could probably like look inside. I, I don't know like how compiled Quake is to start with. Like how much you can dig inside what you receive when you receive. Yeah, oh, Quake. So the Quake engine is written in in C, and um, it it's basically just the 3D renderer plus some some physics code plus the scripting language. And the scripting, you actually do most of the game game scripting in Quake C, which is a one-off, like, invented language that's just, like, that's just for writing Quake's gameplay, basically. It's a very, very strange, very limited language. It doesn't have arrays, for example, so it only has linked lists. Yeah, so uh, the Quake C was uh, available as soon as the game launched, basically, and you could uh, make mods that way. Uh, and the game and the the the, um, the engine code got open sourced, like 2000 maybe. Is this the the, one, the quake where they found the uh, the famous inverse square fast inverse square root algorithm? No, that was that was Quake Three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's actually I, I teach a class in numerical analysis, and that's actually what I show them on day one. Just it really illustrates the different world between the, the difference between mathematics of exact answers and mathematics of approximations your priorities are completely different and so are your standards it's a really interesting thing because we've been taking square roots for millennia we know a lot about square roots uh we've we've thought a lot about them but it took until the 90s for someone to make a faster approximation project you're like telling me the story of my life jim have you ever used a real-time operating system uh no so unless you, unless you count like the Apple II, like I, I've used I've used single tasking operating systems. Yeah, so like what I do for work is uh, you have these deterministic operating systems. So uh, like they have these things, like kind of like cycles. So you might have like one section like that. It's a cycle. It's like a hundred milliseconds long. So any code you put on there is guaranteed to execute every hundred milliseconds. It's great for safety stuff. Like if you need to catch like a signal that something bad has happened to stop the machine. Um, you can guarantee that that is like for sure happening every 50, uh, 50 milliseconds, but it's like, it's this total like mind work to start programming in that environment because like everything is, right. is like happening over and over and over again instead of happening once. And if you write code that isn't super efficient, like you just end up causing this huge disaster because you have all these things that need to happen every five milliseconds. If your square root routine takes 100 milliseconds instead of 40, and you don't put it in the appropriate like time bracket, like all your trains start colliding and bad things <laughs> happen. Right, right. Or, or if like Microsoft decides, oh, now is now I'm going to update the printer drivers. Oh. Right, so that's that's why you. you I, think to- you, I think you just triggered me in three different ways. 
Well, that's the frustrating thing is, right? So we have, we have these like beautiful deterministic operating systems and then your customers are always like, but can you put windows on it? And you're like, I, I can, but I don't, I don't want to. So you essentially have to like put windows in its own little playground on like the slowest loop that you have. And it's like, look, windows, you live in like 10 second response time. Like anything I give you, I am not even going to ask you what the heck just happened for another 10 seconds. You just just do your thing and please use as little of my processor as possible. Um, and can you, can you put Alexa on my machine, you know, in case I wanted to ask it to do something for me? Stuxnet. You get Stuxnet for free. It's Stuxnet for free. Uh, speaking of, we, we, were, we were just talking about Quake and um, disasters happening if your code isn't fast enough. Like most DOS games, even at the time, used effectively a second thread for audio processing, but Quake didn't. Quake actually uh, did its audio processing in the main thread, which meant that if your frame rate dri dipped too low, like below 10 frames a second, the audio would just start to break up. Yeah. That, that's what I thought of when when you were talking about like if your if your code isn't if you you put your code in the wrong time bracket, everything else breaks down too. Yeah, oh, we should try to get you a sample from uh, Mustache Man in our garage. We have uh, an 8-ball deluxe pinball machine, and it's kind of like that Game Boy, like that Game Boy thing too, where like the speed of the game and like the speed of like that the sound gets processed at is like dependent on the individual chip that you get in your machine. So it's pretty wild. Like if we play here, you know, you boot up the game and it's this, cat, this gruff cowboy, you know, can you do it? Well, j just for context here, because you said send a sample of Mustache Man, I feel I should point out we are referring to a pinball game yes. where he is kind <laughs> of the mascot who, uh, it's an older game, but he does talk to you through samples and tell you what to hit next. Can you do some of the call-outs? Uh, chalk up. Hit the five ball, quarter pocket. So so the funny thing is like every now and again we'll go to a tournament where we'll go visit someone, they have a different eight ball and you know we'll be playing and then mustache man is like, get the eight ball, chalk up. <laughs> and you're like, what, wait, who are you? And it's just because they, they must have like a faster chip than we have, so yeah. all the sound runs faster. This was a topic I wanted to contribute at some point about how Pinball games are really interesting because it's half physical and there's still like definitely a difference between two different pinball games. No, nope, we have to talk about shareware floppies. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll shelve uh, this one. It's okay, James talked about pinball like on episode two. Oh, we should we should meet up. Yeah, okay, so so shareware floppies. I, I was telling Alex, I, I love shareware floppies. I, like, I used to be able to go to like the drugstore or the grocery store and you know, they'd be like a dollar each or something, like pretty much the same price as like a blank three and a half inch floppy, uh, but you would also get a game. And if you didn't like it, you could just wipe it and like use it like a normal floppy. But if you did like it, like they were like surprisingly like fully featured. Like you actually got like a whole working game for a dollar and it wasn't even necessarily like a demo. Like a lot of them were just like, oh, if you like this game, like mail me some money, like honorary system. Yeah, shareware, shareware back in the day, like the, the model was that usually that they would release, like they would give you the first episode, they would call it, which is like, you'd get like 10 levels and then you can buy another 20 or 30 levels by sending money off to them. 10 levels is a, like, as it turns out, is a pretty satisfying game. And I think one of the reasons that model started going away is that people were like, yeah, I, I played that game already. I don't need to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly my experience with Doom. I was very young at the time and um, I was dimly aware that there was more game beyond me deep in the dead. But for me, defeating the... Uh, the, what's it called at the end? These uh, the the barons of hell. Barons of hell. Yeah, that was a that was an achievement for me. The other thing that would happen is that um, 
Like, for example, if you look at the for pay episodes of Duke Nukem, the original Duke Nukem, they were pretty bad. Like, hmm. it was, I think it was pretty common for the, uh, the developers to front load all the good levels to episode one. Yeah, that's Where is weird. Timing? That was Jack calling with a harpsichord. We, okay, so we got a call from the manufacturer of the harpsichord we have, who is local. I haven't paid my harpsichord loans. Yeah, he does. I've been to his workshop. It's wild. Uh, the thing that intrigued me about this story is that we are still renting this harpsichord because owning a harpsichord is a responsibility that I'm not sure we're ready for. No, I mean, like, I don't want a harpsichord forever. I don't want to maintain it forever. And you you can't, like, I can't, you can't store them in the basement. Like, you can't store them in the garage. It'll just destroy the instrument. Um, and I, I don't want, like, the lifetime commitment of owning a harpsichord. Like, I... I don't know about you, I don't have a giant house. I don't have a ton of space to store decrepit keyboard instruments. So I'm, I'm trying to get out of my harpsichord loan, but he won't take the harpsichord back. Can you get like a, a harpsichord humidor? Just put it in like a, a sauna? Uh, but yeah, so I've been ignoring his calls uh, and, and not dealing with this for a long time. So I actually really want to get off this topic and back to Sherbert floppies. Uh, so okay. my favorite was uh, Scunny the Squirrel, Save Our Pizzas. And you definitely got four episodes with that one. Uh, so you're a squirrel in ancient Rome uh, fighting gladiators for pizza. Do you have a favorite Sherbert game? Was that a platformer? Yeah. I, I would say Doom is really up there. I, I really uh, I really have a soft spot. I've already talked about this, but I, I really have a soft spot for the Shareware episode of Duke Nukem 1. Like, it's so goofy. I love, like, the, the super low frame rate and how, like, every, every like, ten times you jump... The, the Duke will do a flip in the air instead of just jumping. Oh, I, I definitely wasn't allowed to play those, but we had an agreement uh, where my dad would install Doom. The yeah, I think I think we just had like the full Doom at some point. Uh, but my, my dad would install Doom, and we just wouldn't tell my mom that that folder existed, and she didn't know how to like search <laughs> directories on the computer. Just like this was a DOS, right? Like she didn't know how to like search the file tree to see all the directories that we had. So. You could say it was a hidden folder, but it was really mostly hidden by my mom's inability to do like list all or like, the asterisk symbol. I'm more interested in the squirrel game you were talking about. Oh man, Scunny the Squirrel in Save Our Pizzas. They get, yeah, there's, there's gladiators, you jump on them. I, I, I'm looking at this through like, the eyes of a little kid and like I definitely missed my jump a lot. And then, you know, the gladiators kind of pointy hats would hurt you and then you'd have to try again. You couldn't jump on them because they would stab you from below. I want to say yeah. like you're trying to get pizza for your girlfriend or something. I, I also just remembered uh, Apogee. I had a ton or I had a ton of great games from them. Uh, Hocus Pocus, you're like a wizard. But I, I, seem, yeah. I feel like they had like a whole model like built on Shareware games. They had like a caveman game and uh, yeah, wizard game. And they were all like all platformer esque. I I don't really care for platforms anymore. Is that like is that a hipster thing to say? Like, am I blasé? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can just not like something. That's fine. Well, I mean, like, I, just, I just feel like I'm over it. You know, like it's like I liked platformers before they were cool, but that's not even true. I didn't like platformers before they were cool. I'm just just not into them right now. I, I feel like I can make the argument that platformers, it's a pretty explored space by now. I know they're still making them, and I know they're still making really challenging ones that people really like. It's just, it, it's hard to really get more blood out of this stone almost. Well, and I think that part of the problem is that they're deci they decided like the way to move forward with the platformer genre is to make it as hard as possible. Yeah. Because like... Yeah, some people do really like that, and I, I liked that for a while, and then I was like, you know what, I don't 
ever want to work this hard. I think I would have loved Mario Maker as a kid. I, oh, I, I would have loved Mario Maker yeah. as a kid for sure. I remember going to the library and getting the like long, long, like perforated edges printer paper and like sketching my own Prince of Persia level or uh, yeah. some other platformer, just like oh, with it it could be. <laughs> uh, did you like? Oh, you didn't have Mario Paint, did you? I have to say I, Mario. Cause I'm in America. I had a friend that had Mario Paint. There were no consoles in my house, but that was my favorite thing to go to a friend's house and play. I feel like somewhere out there, there's probably already like an orchestral performance of like Mario Paint Symphony Number no. Five or something. Like there, there's gonna be so many people who, at least in like your mind as a kid, like you've just written like the greatest compositional masterpiece like of our time with fire flowers and station wagons. So you may be interested to know that there is um, a program for Windows called Mario Paint Composer. Yeah, and it has sharps and flats. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> it's so satisfying. We've graduated um, to 12 tones. That, that, that to me is like fall 2005. I discovered Mario Paint Composer and there's sharps and flats. And it's just like so satisfying. It's like, yes, it's like Mario Paint. But finally, I can actually like put in... Uh, yeah. Oh, I thought you were complaining that like, oh, they ruined it by removing this restriction that was the... No, it's kind of like how Stardew Valley like takes Harvest Moon and just like nudges it into its perfect form. I feel like adding sharps and flats to Mario Paint has really just nudged it into like perfection. I see. I mean, I, I like accidentals, so I'm with you. Oh, fun harpsichord fact. I'm just going to stick these in everywhere. Harpsichord facts. Uh, so originally, so there's a thing now that we have like, I think it's called even tuning or is it mean tuning? It's like uh, where notes- Evil tempered. Yeah, it's like every key, like you can transpose from every key into another and like the ratios between notes are always the same. That was not always the case. Um, there were different ways of like breaking down like the octave into different instrument, like intervals when you're tuning an instrument. So, so the end result is like, like F major would actually sound different and have different ratios between the notes than like G or A major or C major. Uh, so right. there was actually more of a point to picking a key signature than just making like your piano students suffer. Uh, like there were certain moods associated with certain key signatures and that's something that's more or less been lost to time, but. But people still think they exist. That, that is another way to make your game sound uh, old timey is like if you can pick like kind of different um, different, slightly different intervals between uh, the notes, it'll give it an old-timey feel. Or you can do like the Journey game for the Atari, and the sound card cannot oh, be able to put the right notes in, and it can just make you want to die every time you hear like <laughs> "Don't Stop Believing," but like, and you're like, I guess that's Journey. <laughs> well, the game should have just come with a cassette tape. Oh, can you play um, a quick jingle to indicate... I'll, I'll paste this in wherever we talk about the harpsichord. Can you play a quick jingle to indicate, like, harpsichord facts? Ooh, uh... uh, uh like an arpeggio yeah, or something? Oh, I think of, uh... What about, um, like, E minor major 7? Uh, I don't speak guitar, man. Uh, yeah, sorry, that was 1-800-harpsichordfacts.com. Uh, where was I? 
Okay, now you have to play the harpsichord in such a way that it sounds like you're dialing 1-800. Oh, yeah, like, boop, 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 boop. Uh, we do have a really good Inspector Gadget duet, but it's been a while. Uh, yeah, not, Spooky I'm, Inspector Gadget is great. Where is Spooky Inspector Gadget? I actually mentioned learning this on harpsichord in a previous Topic Lords. Oh, great. You did. It, it, would, it would be bring such catharsis if we heard it. this myself? It's supposed to be for two people. Let me think. Nope. Can't do it. Okay. Okay. I need more boost. Okay, that'll be the Harpsichord Facts jingle. <laughs> Harpsichord Facts. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Uh, yeah, I think we are. Uh, Xander, your topic is the Atlantic economic world of Neopets. Uh, I bring this up because um, this is some Neopets. Uh, for those who don't know, is an old Flash minigames RPG pet maintenance game that I think has been going on for twenty years. I have never played it nor had any exposure to it until about a month ago um, when Amanda remembered her old accounts and got really excited about it and uh, introduced me to the whole operation. And the more I delve into this as an outsider, the more I see real life sort of emergent principles of economics and gameplay mirrored in a really distorted reflection. <laughs> For example, one thing you have as a player is you own items and you can sell them to other players in a shop. But the game has a, unlike real life, the game at large has a vested interest in seeing small businesses thrive. It really wants people to come back and put in the effort to maintain their shops. So it puts in, it, it puts in these rules and strategies of keeping things, allowing uh, smaller shops to remain competitive. Like, for example, it, like in the, in the princi basic principles of economics, you have um, whoever sells things at the lowest price actually makes the sales. And so everyone is driven to sell things at a lower price and it becomes more efficient for everyone. But the incentives for Neopets is a little different. And what it does is it has a search engine for finding what you want, but it's not a good one by design. <laughs> you will put in a keyword and instead of saying here i looked at everything and i found probably the thing you're going you're looking for or here is all the things you could be looking for it will take your keyword choose an item at random that contains it and then choose a random block of shops that is selling it so it is kind of a fun little exploration game. You really don't know what you're going to get when you search for an item, especially not me who doesn't know what any of these things do and i'm looking at 20 years of items being added into this game with their own stories. And it's just a weird little, uh, like almost an archeological dig or an exploration of an old tomb for me. Like this is definitely a reference to something. I do not know what it is, but the fact that you're never given the best deal, you're just kind of shown shops at random helps keep shops that are not selling at a minimum or at a loss still have some businesses. Like I could probably search for a better price for this, but I don't want to put in the effort. That's interesting. Yeah. If, if I can butt in, uh, I just recovered my 20 year old Neopets account. It's, it's old enough to vote, which is wild. 
Uh, so my Neopets account is voting for Biden in the upcoming election, obviously. <laughs> this is this is the voter fraud they're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's funny Neopets analogs for everything. Like, they have a Neopets World Cup analog uh, and, and things. So I, I feel like there's almost like a Rule 34 for Neopets, where it's like, if it exists in real life, it also exists in Neopets somewhere, uh, <laughs> as long as it's, like, child-appropriate. But, uh, no, getting, getting back to your economy thing... Uh, it's really cool because coming back after like 20 years, like, like the valuations are still like pretty consistent. Like things that were rare then are still rare now. And they haven't had, uh, apparently I kind of Googled this. There was one, there was one singular event where they basically just like multiplied the price of everything by 10 to deal with inflation. But other than that, like, like prices of things have been like fairly stable and predictable. And they haven't had a lot of problems that other game economies have where like either like, you start to need, like, instead of a million points for a rare item, like, you need 10 million or 100 million or a billion. Like, they don't have that problem where rare things become unattainable. And they also haven't had the flip side, like, the Diablo 3 shop problem where, you know, at, over a period of time, everything becomes worth one penny of real money. So, Federal Reserve, if you're listening to this and if you're looking for uh, looking for ways to keep the economy uh, running smoothly. Well, so I, I did my research and Neopets actually had an economist on staff. And so, if you... If you do end up exploring the site a little bit and, and poking around, it, I actually found that really cool as an adult. Like I can look at little like features that I enjoyed as a kid, and I look at it, and I'm like, oh, cool. This is a like this is a sink. This is explicitly a sink to encourage me to like put Neo points into this sink. I will get things right. back at a certain rate, but like, but it is a sink, and it's it's really cool to go back and explore the site like through that lens instead of like strictly through the kid lens of like, ooh, fun or like I want to do this or I want to do that. Uh, for for example, uh, they have this mechanism called a, a, a quest, right? It, it, it's just it's just a fetch quest. Like get an item for something, like and it will give you something. But there's there's a ton of different kind of face plates for it. Like you know, like a fairy will send you on a quest and she'll boost your pet statistics, or um, you'll go on a quest for someone to get an, and they'll they'll randomly reward you with a magical item. Anyway, so so what they used to do is. Uh, the way items spawn in Neopets, like they're they're mostly they start out in stores and then they circulate through the player economy for the most part. Uh, but they do have rarities, like so, just like a loot drop or a monster drop, right? Like the highest is like rarity, like a hundred, so that might spawn like once a month, uh, and like you know, like rarity ninety might spawn once a day, like but but it's randomly, it's not guranteed. And you know, like rarity like 30, 40, 50, 60, they're like super common. You can find them all the time. So anyway, they found like with these fetch quests. Uh, they originally would just kind of like pick a rarity bracket and then like randomly generate an item to send you on a quest for. But what they found is a, an even better solution was to send several players at the same time on a quest for the exact same item. Because that way the players will clear out like kind of maybe say like the cheapest 20 or 100 copies of that item on the market. So it kind of actually keeps your prices a little bit higher. Like by sending like 100 people on the quest for the same thing at once instead of 100 people on quests for 100 random items. Uh, if that makes sense, like it kind of artificially props up um, like the demand for a certain item, and it, it stops people from like doing like the prices right thing and like always just pricing your item like one point less instead of one point over, but like one point less than your your competition. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, what really strikes me is that like I, I, this wasn't this wasn't my experience because I wasn't young enough, but. I think for a lot of players, this is like their first exposure to things like bank accounts and prices and investing and all of these complicated systems. And it, it's sort of an environment where you, you can actually 
figure some cool stuff out. It's like a it's like a training mode for real life finances. Oh yeah, there's a stock market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what what also grabbed my attention is that they have a lot of mini games, and some of them are just ripoffs of other games. It's all Flash. I don't know what they're going to do when Flash goes down. Um, but there's one little game that's basically it's basically gambling, but the it's kind of like horse races a little bit. But instead of real life, where the house always wins, it's rigged so that the house very often doesn't win because they're they can make up money whenever they want, and they're incentivized to keep people playing. So it actually becomes a much more interesting problem about how to make the most profit out of this complicated probabilistic system. Like I went ahead and wrote uh, algorithms and some like gradient descent optimization, linear algebra under border conditions uh, thing for this for this silly little game about fake money. Well, yeah, and I have to say it's kind of cool. Like my journey through Neopets, like I started playing as a kid, and then uh, when I was in high school, I took a statistics class, and I was like, "Oh man, now I have like the tools to understand how to win money like every time from these games." Because so some of them are like they're worse than blackjack. Like you can you can absolutely figure out like how to beat the house almost every time. Uh, and so it's it's kind of funny that like like my evolution with that. Like now that I'm an adult, you know, throwing a guy with a PhD at math at it. Like okay, like let's really crack this thing. I want like a 1.7 to one rate of return on my food club bets this week. But uh, like talking to other players, it's really interesting because I think like the player base has a lot more women, especially than like other websites in like the 90s and 2000s. And there's actually like a huge, uh, huge community of women who are like, oh yeah, like this is how I learned HTML. This is how I learned PHP. Like this is how I learned programming. Uh, I learned all this programming because I wanted to have like the like the nicest shop in Neopets, like to convince people to buy my whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, that also kind of reminds me of The Sims. I think had this too. I remember I was looking up stuff for modding, and um, like I went to forums, and like I didn't I didn't know anyone's gender, but there were some people that seemed they had like effeminate names, and it it looked like this was. This was their like their first exploration. This was this was like a first exploration into some of the more technical details of three D rendering and working with uh, texture maps and so forth. And it was pretty interesting to see. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Like just to see like a like a community that approaches like a lot of like these things exist on the internet in other places. But it's interesting to see like kind of like how that evolved like within Neopets, like compared to other sites or compared to sites that are like more more dude oriented it's just kind of interesting that like i think there's a whole bunch of people who maybe otherwise like wouldn't have considered themselves like programmers or like oh i like can't do math i'm not super technical but you like look at the stuff they've created for neopets and it's just like hyper focused super detailed like here is how to like maximize the one particular odds of this thing or like here here is how to like really push, I don't know, HTML5 to its full potential to get a really big sparkling snowflake in the middle of your ice-themed Neopets shop. Um, <laughs> Didn't you make some kind of guide way back in the day? Yes, I have. I have been featured in the Neopian Times twice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I particularly like the, the intentionally broken search engine for items because I, I feel like it lends a new life into gift-giving. It, it, I don't know. I've never been good at gift-gifting, but it, gift-giving... But it just, it feels kind of hollow now that everything's findable. It's like, if I'm giving something to you, you, you could have found this on your own. So either, so it has to be something you wanted, but didn't know about, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I've definitely found myself like deliberately not buying things for myself so that people can give them to me. Yeah, it's that's not really a, a problem we have anymore. But it, in this system, we've been like constantly giving each other silly gifts because I never know what I'm going to find when I search for a keyword. If, if I give you something, that just shows the like the thought like, hey, I found this cool thing and I bet you would think it's cool too. Do Check wanna, it out. Do you want to read out your inventory? Do you still have all the gifts that oh, you gave? Oh boy, uh, I can do the highlights. Yeah, they, they do a really good job of, like, maintaining artificial scarcity, like, almost impressively, because, like, the site has been generating items and, like, Moran's economy for 20 years, and it, it's still, like, if you get into, like, if you get really into shopping on Neopets, it's still really fun. Like, you get that feeling of, like, oh, I got, like, a really great deal on this thing, and the best thing is, like, it's not even real money. I get the experience of being, like, really irresponsible with my money and buying everything that I want, but, like, there's no real-world consequences for it. It's awesome. <laughs> so, a lot of the things you give to me are based on inside jokes, but you did uh, give yeah, it's me... Yeah, slug-themed. You did give me Square Roots, a book called Square Roots and More, uh, one called How to Make Math Jewelry. How to Fold Paper into Shapes. Yeah. Wait, so when you say books, are we talking about... In-game items? They're in-game items. Yeah, so you can't you, actually read them, unfortunately. But to my to my earlier point, uh, no, you can read them to your Neopet, and that, that yeah. uses up the item, so that consumes the item. That's a sink. But if you want, if you want to get super into that, there is a trophy for reading Neopet, uh, reading books to your Neopet. So if you want to get competitive, um, you can try to read the most books to your Neopet. And so like even just the act of like reading a book to your pet is like somehow like competitive and humified. Uh, so if you're like of a completionist course. like me, it's awesome. Yeah. And then you only want to read the best books and feed them the best food, or you can just feed them whatever. Uh, there's only 150 space-themed books, and if I read 140 of them to my alien Aisha, she will be on the high score table. Uh, so it's been like the focus of my last week in like the middle of the night when I can't sleep. I'm up like trying to buy rare books on Neopets to get on the space score yeah. table. So before we move on from Neopets, have you two seen the... Everest Pipkin's thread about running a Neopets crime syndicate when they were nine. That's awesome. That sounds just like me. I had a Beanie Babies crime syndicate. Yeah, but you're, okay. you, you worked with actual money as a kid, illicitly. <laughs> well, you could totally sell Neopets things for money. That's what I'm assuming this person did. Uh, well, I, I'm actually not sure what they did because I didn't really understand it, but... Uh, apparently, when uh, they started getting money from PayPal, their confederates turned on them and turned them into the, the admins and got the whole thing shut down. Yeah, they used to have this thing called web certificates where if you were like an eight-year-old running an illicit online business, uh, it was like sort of like online gift cards. It was basically this agreement where people would send web certificates money and then web certificates would spend that money on your behalf like at a store. So they were kind of like the intermediate, like pre-PayPal um, between you and stores, but in a super kind of sketchy. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this. Is, is this web certificates? Is this on Wikipedia? Let's find out. Yeah. Okay. So I, maybe I'll, I don't know if I'll tell my whole Beanie Babies um, syndicate story, but basically at one point, like I went to the post office in my small town and I said, uh, my grandma worked at the post office too. And I was like, hey... You know, it would be so cool to have a P.O. box. I would really love a P.O. box. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> and they were like, sure, sweetie, here's a P.O. box. No questions, no paperwork. Um, I went to the bank and I was like, hey, like mom says, I need to have my own bank account to like save my piggy bank savings. And they were like, sure, sweetie, no big deal. You know, small town, 90s. So I'm like, hey, I have a bank account and a post office box. And like, that is the key to running an underground Beanie Babies empire. Like, let me tell you. Uh, so yeah, so that the, the last thing this step is actually getting paid. Um, 
You don't want to get paid by check with your real name because it looks really suspicious when eight-year-olds cash checks for like $200. Um, so yeah, you definitely like want to use, back, back in the day, at least I would use um, like web certificates or something similar uh, with like some guys of like, oh, you know, we're like in different locations and going to the bank is a lot of effort. Wouldn't it be easier if you just, you know, like bought me a gift certificate on webcertificates.com and then I, I will go do my leisurely adult shopping with it and totally not use it to buy more Beanie Babies for my illicit Beanie Baby empire. Sounds very exciting. Uh, it's okay, the statute of limitations has expired. Yeah. What would what would be the crime specifically? What crime can you not be prosecuted for now? Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll spill a little more of the beans. Uh, I wrote for a big Beanie Babies magazine as an editor. Um, I ran like a few like web rings or like web malls that resold Beanie Babies. Uh, and I read like kind of like, like Beanie Baby classified ads. So like people would post, like you'd post on my site, right? You'd be like, oh, I want the iguana, but I want it to have a really nice color pattern and I will pay $15. So I would just intercept all the postings before I posted them. And if one person was selling a Beanie Baby for like 10 bucks and someone else was buying for 15, I would just like do the trade and pocket the five bucks. Right. But like running the classified ads. Arbitrage, that's not illegal. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't... Is there a minimum age for arbitrage? A minimum and a maximum, actually. Can't do it in, after 35. Oh. Uh, so I felt sketchy. Like, one of the magazines, like, wanted an editor. And they were like, wow, if we hire people online, like, we can pay them, like, nothing. Like, we can hire people in, like, a low-cost-of-living area and just, like, pay them very little. Like, like, I think people were just kind of figuring out, like, how to run, like, digital publishing businesses or, like, how to run their business online. So there was, like, some, some big Beanie Baby magazine... Uh, I wrote some articles for them. They're like, oh, your articles are great. Uh, so I wrote some articles for this magazine. They really liked my work. And they were like, hey, we're looking for an editor. You should apply. So I said I was 55. My name was Donna Mason. And I lived in Vermont. And I had a degree from the University of Vermont. Like, <laughs> like there weren't even websites for that shit yet. Like, like most schools didn't have websites. So like they didn't even check. I don't even know if there is a University of Vermont. I don't even know if they have a journalism program. I, but they bought my shit and they paid me real adult money to edit their magazine. It was awesome. I, I think when you told me this story, you actually asked me if Vermont was a real place. No, I asked you if University of Vermont okay. was a real school. Well, I mean, I either question's know. valid. And I'm really sorry if you have <laughs> listeners from like, the University of Vermont. Uh, it's just like, I'm Canadian. Like, Vermont is an imaginary place, like, in my mind. I hear yeah. they have maple syrup there. It must be good. So it's like the Canada of Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one lives there, but you know, you take on faith that it's so, real. So I always like kind of thought that was how I would get busted. And I had to come up with like really elaborate schemes for like, like, so obviously I could like, I, I'd be like, hey, um, you know, I've retired to Canada and I can't cash American checks because they have different routing numbers, which is true. Uh, American checks and Canadian checks have different routing numbers. So it's like actually, really, it used, it's hard. It's still hard to set up payments between the two countries. It used to be even harder. So then I would tell people like, hey, you know what? Like, I might not be back in the U.S. for a while. Do you just want to like, do you like just buy me some like online gift certificates and I'll, I'll use them to do my Christmas shopping or something. You know, like, I always made it seem like it wasn't a big deal. And I think people were happy to like, you know, I mean, obviously like, underpay. Like they didn't have to pay me benefits. They didn't have to like pay me a real hourly wage. Like they just had to throw a few hundred bucks into online gift cards every month. And so... I just like kept funneling that into like more and more and more and more and more and more Beanie Babies, which would show up in my post office box and then repackage them and mail them out. And the, the shitty side of the story is like after all of that work, like it probably only amounted to like a few grand. And I just like spent that all going to college. You know, like, that's not even like a term 
of tuition. If you're like, <laughs> if you're the responsible young scammer who takes the profits from their Beanie Baby arbitrage and you know like saves it long term, the sad thing is like like several years of my like Beanie Baby enterprise like probably didn't even pay like for my college textbooks and tuition for more than a semester. I mean, if you, if you can't pay for college with Beanie Babies, you know things are out of hand. Yeah, if you're making money, if you're making like child money that feels like a bunch of money as a child, you need to spend that money as a child for it to feel meaningful. Because once you're making adult money, like your $2,000 or whatever in your savings account, it's nothing. It's like it might as well not have happened and it validates all your previous work. Same deal, by the way, with barely making a living making indie games and then getting a real job. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think like that's kind of like how it, it grew on me because at first I would just do like those little trades, like you know, I'd pocket five bucks for trades, and that was like really exciting for a kid. And, like five bucks was a lot. I could buy like I could buy a whole Beanie Baby for ten dollars, you know. Uh, and but then like when I yeah I started running like a couple websites for like Beanie Baby collectors and Beanie Baby malls or like web rings. Um, you know, that would be like a hundred bucks a month or something. Like all of a sudden that's, you know, that's like 20 trades right there. Uh, and that, that got like really exciting. And then, then the editor thing, like that was even more money. It was peanuts for an adult, but for a kid, it was like, Ooh, holy cow. Um, oh yeah. I got an insider tip that Ty was going to retire all the Beanie Babies in 1999, which they did right before 2000. Uh, they retired every single one of their Beanie Babies. And then people caught on to the fact that it was a scam with artificial scarcity and like the Beanie Baby market tanked overnight. So at the same time, eBay kicked me off because they were like really sure I was not even 13. Um, never mind an adult. So, something happened and <laughs> that meant I couldn't run my empire. And I think web certificates got busted too. Oh, it was an American law that said you had to be 13 to use the internet. I blame America. Yeah, so I got this hot tip that uh, yeah, Ty was gonna retire all the Beanie Babies. And so I knew I had to like start selling everything I had because it, it was gonna be bad. Uh, and I, I had a couple months. Uh, so I was just started selling, like I had probably thousands of Beanie Babies. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, eBay broke my account and I think I got locked out of a couple other payment mechanisms. So I had to go through my mom and it was awful because my mom sat me down and she was like, okay, let's sell a Beanie Baby on eBay. First, how much do you think you want to sell it for? And I was like, Mom, I have a thousand Beanie Babies I need to move in a month. Like, I had a spreadsheet with all the prices and like I would, uh, so when they, like when Americans would publish the Beanie Baby price guides, like I would be the Canadian consultant and I would just give them like my spreadsheets of how much the Beanie Babies were selling for in Canada and they would like use that to write the price guides. And so here's my mom like trying to explain to me painstakingly. It took her an hour to help me make a listing for one Beanie Baby. And I was like, I don't think you understand. I have stock to move before the market crashes, mother. Um, it was I, awful. I mean, this really sounds like a scene <laughs> out of the big short or that movie about Enron <laughs> of like, oh shit, it's action time. The market's collapsing. We need to move, 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 but we can't because we're eight. Uh, 12. Well, and what really happened there was your mom accidentally saved you from being busted for insider trading. Uh, I, I don't know, though. Like, laws don't apply to children. <laughs> <laughs> you would have gone to juvie. This, well, you're in Canada. You're safe. Well, and so my favorite epilogue is uh, a few years ago, I was in the airport with my dad. We're waiting for a flight. We're just chatting. And my dad's like, you know, like, I'm really glad you're like such a smart kid and you take care of yourself because when I like I look at like all the things on the internet, like I feel like I did a really bad job as a parent for not protecting you from the internet. And I was like, oh no, like you needed to protect the internet from me. 
<laughs> you got all the like skeezy hustle out of your system at a young age before it could do any damage. It's kind of a bummer, you know, like, I just realized I'm the same age as Neil Cesariga and like, like <laughs> yeah. I could have been Neil Cesariga if I hadn't had a half hour per day screen time limit and I'm like still really resentful about this. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all bummed out by that. Really? You ran that whole empire on half an hour a day? Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Even more impressive. It, it worked out okay because like, so like I grew up in Canada, right? And like the drinking age is 18. It's not really a big deal like at holidays, you know, it's like, oh, it's New Year's, you're 10, here, have a glass of champagne, like super casual. Um, I think my mom always wanted me to be like really cool. So she's like, you know, you can like do some drugs and some partying, but not, not too much. Uh, so the forbidden things in my house, my, my brother's diabetic, the forbidden things were uh, wheat, sugar, and video games. So like, of course, what did I do when I turned 18? Like I bought my own pinball machine and I like lived off Wonder Bread for probably four months straight. It was glorious. So so in a weird way, like, like I think the half hour screen time thing kind of helped, but it also like kind of sucked because I feel like I could be as cool as Neil Cicerega if only I had had like several hours per day in high school to make chip tunes. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the screen time limit makes a lot more sense if the kid is doing something passive, like like watching TV or even playing video games. But like, if you're preventing your child from focusing on an interesting project, I think that can do real harm. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's real weird, weird mixed stuff. Um, also, like kind of funny, funny more text stories with my parents. Uh, my dad works in IT, so I think I told him like in '95 or something. I wanted a web page, so he actually like just printed off like the HTML standard and gave that to me, like. <laughs> Uh, and it, it just like, it's just the thought of doing that to a child is hilarious. And I'm like, I don't know what my dad was going for, but it, I, I think he's just like, well, he wanted to know about the internet and that that's what I had. So <laughs> I mean, back then, like a child could actually reasonably just type HTML and make a web page. Yeah. Oh, so I read a, a blog, I think it was like, honestly, it was like Joel on software. Like he, he had a blog, like Joel Spolsky or something. I read his yeah. book and he was talking about how if you didn't put the Unicode character encoding at the top of your page, uh, Internet Explorer would use like histograms to try and predict what language your page was in so we could display it correctly. Yeah. And it was so satisfying because I absolutely never put that Unicode in and I thought that my computer had a glitch where sometimes it would show my web pages in Korean. I, and it was so satisfying like 20 like twenty some years later to be like, oh, it's because I didn't put the Unicode line on my web page when I was like 10. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like, yeah, just like yeah. the longest time delay for like a bug fix uh, that I didn't even know I'd been waiting for. I'd completely forgotten about it. And it was like, it was just the most satisfying moment. Notepad does something similar where if you, if you open a file, it'll guess whether to open it in ASCII or Unicode based on like which one it looks more, it looks more like just a pure guesswork. And there are famous, there's a sentence like, this program can break, where if you type just that sentence into a text file and open it in Notepad, it'll open it up as a jumble of, of Unicode. That's how I met my best friend in college, sort of. Um, we went to really shitty schools and we, we benefited very much from uh, wealthy corporate donors dumping a whole bunch of literature on our school, but it was always like really motivated. Like Apple would come in and buy your school a whole computer lab, seeing if the kids only learn how to use Macs, you would probably buy a Mac when you're older. Uh, and like, like on the flip side, like Microsoft would give us all like free programming classes and free programming books. Cause they figured if like you learn how to program their stuff, you would keep using it. So we got some shitty Microsoft specific version of C++ that would not compile in any other compiler. 
Uh, and so having both gone to terrible high schools, we like learned Microsoft C++, we went to university, sat in our first programming class, and like my hello world would not compile. And I was like, I spent like my last year trying to learn C++ before I had to like do it in university. Like, was this all a lie? Like, do I understand nothing? Like, I was convinced that like, like all of a sudden logic didn't make sense and like computers didn't work anymore. Um, but at that time I met my friends in a class of like 300 people, there were the two of us being like, well, excuse me, I tried hello world and it's not building. <laughs> And it, uh -huh. it was just like this one extra character that like the Windows C++ book made you put in that you like didn't need anywhere else. I don't I don't even remember the details. Uh, I just remember like being like horrified. It's so, like there I am in like my college lecture and like oh, hello world won't compile. I might I might have inadvertently done that experience to my students. I I, I write them uh, write them homework assignments, uh, but it's all coded and. Uh, most of the parameters are random, but every so often a student will get a really bad RNG and get a really ridiculous version of the problem or one that just doesn't compile. And it's like, well, <laughs> thanks for helping me play test. <laughs> uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords tonight. All right. Amanda, if this is something that you want, where can people find, where can people find you on the internet? I don't have a huge web presence outside of that. Uh, is, that, that is perfectly admirable. You can just say you don't want people to talk to you. No, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you my email address. Uh, my last name is like Kitchen, but all the vowels turn into O's, and my first initial is A. So I have the same like first initial last name email at Gmail that everyone has. A-K-O-T-C-H-O-N at gmail.com. But it's way more oh, fun to use the Kitchen explanation because then everyone spells it wrong and I don't get email. All right, perfect. Uh, and uh, Alexander, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on, your inter on the internet? Um, probably your best bet is the Topic Lords Discord at this point. I also do not have <laughs> much, of a, much of an online presence. Um, yeah, that's the uh, same as before. If you're the police asking you about the Beanie Babies, this was all a fabrication. You, uh, yeah, I, I work for the uh, University of Vermont's uh, <laughs> exactly. journalism degree. No, I'm the dean of the journalism department. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, one more, one more harpsichord fact before we go. Harpsichord facts. Christmas carols sound awful on harpsichord. Let me see if I can can play myself out here. Thanks so much for being on. Oh, thanks so much for having us. This is always a blast. Can we do Harpsichords part two next week? I have so <laughs> many more samples and composers. We'll make our own podcast for that. But I, I need <laughs> questions first because I don't want to tell people things they aren't Ask a Harpsichord. In. Yeah. Oh, you have people call in. <laughs> Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. 
You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.